Well, one of my favorite pastors and authors is Gene Getz. And Gene tells the story of skiing in Colorado on one of his favorite mountains called Crested Butte. And he says in this story, at the end of the day, I came off the mountain, got on the bus, and waited to return to the lodge. It had been a beautiful day. More than a foot of fresh powdery snow had fallen the night before, and the grooming crews had worked all night getting the slopes ready. And when the day had dawned, the skiing conditions were perfect. As I sat there on the bus, reflecting on the great time I had that day, a man got on the bus carrying a young woman, probably in her teens. I figured he was her father and she must have injured herself skiing. But then I noticed that something else was wrong. As she sat in the seat next to him, the man put his arm around her and held her upright. If he hadn't, she would have fallen over onto the floor. I also noticed that she tried to talk and gesture with her arms, but her words were garbled and she had difficulty controlling her arms. I could see she had a serious problem with coordination overall. There wasn't anything wrong with her intellectually, and she was certainly happy, but her smile was a bit contorted as she tried to share the excitement of her day. I realized then that this young woman was physically challenged. She had a disability in which the brain would send signals to various parts of her body, but those body parts didn't respond properly. And I realized that I had skied all day long, making turns and negotiating moguls and taking for granted that my arms and legs would respond properly and immediately to the signals from my brain. And as I sat and reflected, I thought of a similar tragedy, in many respects, an even greater tragedy. Being a pastor and a church planter, I thought of churches around the country and around the world that experience a similar disability. Churches where Jesus Christ, the head, sends signals to various members of his body, but those members fail to respond properly or immediately. In fact, many times they respond by doing the exact opposite of what the Lord has asked. And as a consequence, the church lacks unity and coordination, and it experiences division and ineffectiveness instead. I tell you that story, friends, because the potential of any church becoming unresponsive to the signals from our head, Jesus Christ, or becoming indifferent to the Lord's teaching as we receive them, or becoming deaf to the whispers of the Spirit, that potential still looms and threatens the body of Christ today. It threatened the church in Philippi in the first century, and it threatens CCC in Princeton in the 21st century. And Satan would like nothing more than to deceive individual believers and entire congregations into becoming unresponsive to the Lord. Now, this morning, we are continuing on in our study through the New Testament book of Philippians. And in the passage we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul seems to be returning to an idea that he had initially raised at the end of chapter 1, where 
he exhorted and even commanded the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit. He said, be of one mind, work side by side for the faith of the gospel, he said. And if you remember in the closing verses of chapter 1, he said this command applies when you face external pressures from people outside that are opposing you, pressures outside the church walls. And then in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul said it also applies when you're facing internal pressures, conflicts and disagreements from inside. And now today, in chapter 4, as Paul prepares to finish this letter, he returns back to this theme of standing firm. And he addresses two very specific situations that are occurring in the Philippian church. The first is an internal conflict, and the second is external persecution. So we're going to work our way through these first nine verses of chapter 4, and we're going to see what the Lord wants to teach us together this morning. In the opening verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, the call to stand firm is repeated. The call to stand firm is repeated. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let me give you two observations about this verse. First of all, Paul addresses the Philippian believers with these four words or phrases that communicate a deep, deep love and affection for this little church that Paul has felt for all 10 years that he has been a part of their church life. If you remember from chapter 1, verse 7, Paul had written to them, he said, I have you in my heart. Remember that? Some say it's, it's the most tender expression Paul ever penned. In a way, he's saying, everywhere, everywhere I go, I carry you people in my heart. I love you so much. Paul loved this church so deeply, and his heart soared with joy whenever he thought about them. He had sacrificed much for her in the 10 years since he had started that church, and his heart was bound together, woven together with theirs. And here he calls them by these words. He says, you're my brothers. He says, you whom I love and long for. He calls them my joy and my crown. And then he calls them dear friends at the end. Again, this is some of the most personal and tender writings that the Apostle Paul ever scripted. Now, just as he had done earlier in chapter 2, Paul is about to give the church some firm and serious instruction about how to respond to these two specific situations. But he does not want this instruction to come across as angry and critical. He wants his words to bring encouragement, not discouragement. And so before Paul plants these seeds of instruction, he prepares the soil of their heart to receive it. And so with these words of tender affection, Paul puts into words the deep love and concern that he feels for them and for their spiritual growth, reminding them that they are dear to his heart. Paul needs to challenge the church, but he wants to do it with the heart of a shepherd. And friends, when you and I read these verses, we should feel loved when we read them. 
The, the love that Paul feels for the Philippians is a love that comes from the heart of our Heavenly Father, who loves his people even more than Paul loved the Philippians. And so when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words, the Lord was wanting to convey to us, through Paul, the love of God's heart towards each one of us as well. Because he is a God who loves us and always seeks our greatest good. My second observation about this verse is that Paul begins with the word therefore, which should always cause you to ask, what's it therefore, right? And this single word links together what Paul has just said in the previous verses, which are the final verses of chapter 3. He links that together with what he is about to say in these verses. In other words, because we are citizens of heaven... And because of Christ's glorious return in power and glory, which he talked about at the end of chapter 3, Paul now in chapter 4 calls us to stand firm in the Lord. It is an appeal to persevere in the face of adversity. Not in our own strength, but in the Lord. And so Paul says when we face difficult, overwhelming, or even devastating circumstances... We are able to stand firm and to remain steadfast and immovable because of Christ. We stand firm in the Lord because we have been adopted into the family of God and we are now citizens of heaven. And we can hold on and persevere through hard things because Jesus is soon to return in power and glory. Friends, I don't know about you, but I find tremendous encouragement in this. I face my share of difficult and devastating circumstances. Pastors are not immune to hardship and adversity. But as a person who faced far more hardship than I did, and as a person who faced more severe trials than I have, the Apostle Paul encourages me. And in a way, he is saying, stand firm, David. Stand firm. Be steadfast in this. Be immovable in this. Not in your own strength, but in the Lord. And with that encouragement, I find strength in the Lord to hang on for yet another day. Because I know I am a citizen of the kingdom of God and my Savior is returning. So I can hold on. I can now, in verses 2 through 9, the call to stand firm is applied. He's going to apply it for them. And Paul applies it in three distinct ways. First, he applies it internally. The call to stand firm is applied internally. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. In these verses, Paul addresses a dispute that has arisen between two ladies in the Philippian church. The first is named Euodia. Everybody say Euodia. Yeah, and the other is Syntyche. Everybody say Syntyche. Yeah, those are popular names. I'm sure they'll be with us in the next child dedication, right? Any, any parents that, you know, might 
have children in the future, you'll want those names. Euodia has five vowels in it. I don't know what you do with that, but okay. But we actually know nothing really about these two ladies other than what Paul has told us here. But since Paul identifies them by name, it suggests that they were probably prominent members of the Philippian church, maybe even highly visible workers in the ministry there. Paul said that these women contended at his side in the cause of the gospel. And this word contended, it's a strong word. It means to struggle against an opponent, either in military battle or in athletic games. But it's this struggle against an opponent. And so Paul is saying, when, he says, when they contended with me, he means these women have served elbow deep in ministry with me. And, and he commends their faithful service. Some people even think that Euodia and Syntyche may have been part of Paul's inner circle of ministry helpers. Now, Paul would have heard about this conflict from Epaphroditus, because remember, Paul was under house arrest. And so he would have heard about this from Epaphroditus when Epaphroditus arrived and updated Paul on what's going on. Now, we're not given any details but again, there must have been something significant about either the issue itself or the negative impact it was having on the church. Something about it caught Paul's attention because Paul chose to address these two ladies by name in the letter, which is very rare in Paul's writings. He greets people, but he rarely deals with personal issues by name. Now, disagreements amongst believers, that's nothing new, and it's not sinful. In fact, disagreements can often serve to help us. They can clarify our thinking and sharpen our ministries or our methodology if they are handled well. But if they're handled poorly, then they can become sinful and the potential damage to the ministry is huge. Right attitudes and per, uh, peaceful resolutions only come when we imitate the attitude of Christ, which Paul has spent a bunch of this letter writing about. But we must imitate the attitude of Christ. Notice that when Paul addresses this, he doesn't take sides. He pleads with both women equally. And he doesn't decide the matter for them. Rather, he calls upon them to agree with each other in the Lord. And this phrase, to agree with each other, this is actually the same phrase that Paul used in chapter 2 when he first introduced the idea of humble servanthood and pointed to Jesus Christ as our example. In that phrase, it was translated, have the same mind as Christ or the same attitude. But this, this is the same wording here. So in using this phrase, Paul is reminding them of the same things he said back in chapter 2. He's reminding Euodia and Syntyche to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others as more important than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, he would say to them, but also look out for the interests of others. You see, if the ladies will put on an attitude of Christ and agree in the Lord 
they can resolve this issue and the, and the work of the ministry can continue and flourish. Paul also calls for some intervention. Notice he calls upon people around these women to help them. You know, an ongoing, unresolved conflict only serves to weaken the church, to taint the church's reputation in the community, and to discourage people inside the church who are looking for healthy, Christ-honoring role models from their leaders. So Paul calls upon the people in the church to come alongside Euodia and Syntyche and help them. And sometimes, friends, help is needed. Sometimes a trusted mutual friend or a mediator or a Christian counselor is needed to bring both an objective perspective and to make sure that both sides are listening carefully to each other. This passage, in this passage, Paul reminds us to seek unity with the attitude of Christ. Seek unity with one another and resolve disagreements before damage is done to the ministry. So when conflicts and disagreements arise in our midst, and it will happen from time to time, let's be faithful to go directly to each other in private and genuinely seek to understand the other person's perspective. Let's let the attitude of Christ saturate our conversations. And here's what I mean by that. Seek unity, not victory. Seek unity, not victory in those conversations. Now, sometimes resolution won't come easy. And if resolution cannot be reached, then I would encourage you to invite a trusted mutual friend into the process, someone who can bring objectivity and a fresh perspective. Don't be afraid or even hesitant to ask for help. Asking for help is, is a sign of maturity. It's a sign of the desire for resolution and unity. You know, broken bones, if reset properly, are actually stronger after the healing process is complete. And in the same way, broken relationships, if mended carefully, can actually be strengthened as a result of all of this. So, for the sake of unity, and for the sake of the larger church ministry, and for the sake of our witness in the Princeton community, let's seek to resolve disagreements peacefully and quickly with each other. Now, in verses 4 through 7, the call to stand firm is applied externally. The call to stand firm is applied externally. Let's look at these verses together. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In these, uh, in these four verses, Paul shifts his focus away from the two gals and puts his attention back on issues facing the larger church. And again, when Paul first commanded the Philippians to stand firm back in chapter 1, he was urging them to stand firm and contend for the faith of the gospel against those who oppose them. He was dealing with persecution. 
because persecution was beginning to increase in Philippi. If you remember, 10 years earlier, when Paul and Silas had first come to town, um, they had encountered, they had shared the gospel with people, and as a result of that, they were falsely accused of throwing the city into confusion with their teaching, and then they were beaten with rods and thrown in jail. They faced persecution 10 years earlier. And now, 10 years later, the Philippian believers were being opposed. This church was facing pressure uh, and opposition from their community. Their faith was being challenged, and without Paul there to defend them, they were having to stand up to their persecutors by themselves. And it is to that persecution that Paul now turns his attention in chapter 4, repeating his command to the Philippians, stand firm in the Lord. You know, Paul had faced persecution and hostile opposition numerous times throughout his, throughout his life. Three times, he said, he had been beaten with rods. Five times he had received the 40 lashes with a whip. And once he had been stoned and left for dead outside the city. Paul understood. He knew exactly what these Philippians were up against. He did. And in verses 4 to 7, Paul is going to give three rapid-fire commands, quickly and concisely instructing the Philippians how to respond when they face fierce opposition. So in verse 4, the first thing he says to them is, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And friends, this is not just a trite Christian cliche for Paul. He lived this reality every day. Paul suffered ridicule and adversity and beatings and pain and imprisonment every day. As he took the message of Christ to people who had never heard the name of Jesus. And when given the chance, whenever the opportunity arose, he would worship and praise the name of Christ, grateful to be allowed to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Even as he penned these words to the Philippians, he was chained to a Roman guard. But Paul rejoiced. Remember why? Because he said the gospel is even spreading through the entire Praetorian soldiers. Even in that I can rejoice, Paul said. Rejoice, Paul says, because you have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And he reminds them to rejoice in the Lord. That phrase, in the Lord, is so important to understanding this letter. He, Paul is saying, do not, do not look to find lasting joy in your circumstances. That's just a hopeless pursuit. Your circumstances are temporary. They come and go. They change every day. And you'll simply end up disappointed and frustrated and empty. Don't look for joy in your circumstances. Instead, instead, anchor your rejoicing in the person and work of Christ because he will not disappoint you and he will not lead you astray. Jesus is dependable and he will never leave you or forsake you. And you can count on him because the scriptures tell us he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And you can rejoice in the Lord always Paul says, always, because Paul had learned through the years that he could rejoice in every situation, in any time of the day or night, in any location, and in any health conditions. I can rejoice in the Lord 
always. Our ability to rejoice is not determined by our external reality. True joy is anchored in Christ alone. And so Paul says, rejoice always in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. Then in verse 5, Paul says, when facing persecution, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. And this word for gentleness, this is a difficult one to translate for a number of commentaries talk about its difficulty. But it refers to an attitude of kindness when retaliation is expected. This idea for gentleness is it's, an, it's, an, it's a, an, a response of kindness when retaliation is expected. It also means being willing to give up your own rights if need be. And when Paul wrote this to the Philippians, I think Paul's mind was going right back to the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you for your tunic, then let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I think these words were in Paul's mind when he said, let your gentleness be evident to all. Paul is saying, when you face your persecutors, respond with kindness and gentleness, especially in those moments when retaliation is anticipated from you. Do this, keeping in mind that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now, this little phrase can be in, understood in two ways. Paul might be referring to the fact that the Lord's presence is always with us, that God is at work in our hearts, completing the good work that he had started, enabling us to grow and mature and become like Christ. But Paul might also be referring to Christ's return, to his second coming. And the promise of the Lord's return always encourages careful and thoughtful conduct in the life of his followers. Paul always had kind of a watchfulness and an eager anticipation of the Lord's return. It was never far from Paul's thinking, and it motivated everything he did. Both ideas here are possible, and frankly, I think Paul probably intended us to understand both of them. Now, in verses 6 and 7, Paul understands that persecution and hostile op opposition and the tension that results from it that just puts everybody on edge. And people naturally begin to feel anxiety and worry. And so Paul wisely instructs the Philippians to take that anxiety to the Lord in prayer. He says, do not be anxious about anything, even this persecution that you're facing. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the word Paul uses for anxious here, do not be anxious about anything, that word means to be pulled in different directions. The idea of being, I'm pulled one direction by my hope, and I'm being pulled the other direction by my fear. That's the idea. Anxiety and worry occur when our thoughts about the future 
uh, are overtaken by fear to the point where we can only imagine our future full of terrible and catastrophic outcomes. That's what stirs up worry and anxiety. John Piper says, anxiety is an intense desire for one outcome, but that, one out, that desire is overwhelmed by a strong fear of the consequences of not achieving that one outcome. And so anxiety takes our dreams and it slashes at them with worst case scenarios and what if questions until we are left full of fear and without any hope. Worry and anxiety, hear this, hear this statement, friends, this is, this is helpful. Worry and anxiety are a subtle distrust of God's ability to meet our needs. And it leads us, in, uh, and, it, and, it, and a distrust of his ability to lead us into a desirable future. And Paul strongly wants to keep the Philippians from letting their minds go that direction. Don't wander down a path where you don't really trust the Lord to be good for you. And so he urges them to respond to worry and anxiety with trust, going immediately to God in prayer. He tells the Philippians, take all that tension and all that fear and all that worry that comes from persecution or anything else that you might be anxious about. Take every single bit of that to the Lord. Take all of that energy that's used in worrying and redirect it in prayer. Pray about everything. Paul says, pray about everything. No request is too small, too difficult, or inconsequential. Pray in good times, bad times, scary times, and sad times. Let your prayers be filled with worship and praise, and let them also be filled with petitions and requests. Review God's promises on a regular basis. Think about his previously answered prayers, and remember his goodness to you in the past. Think about his faithful provision for you. Think about the things that he provided, not only that you asked about, but even the things you didn't know to ask about. And the combination of all of that, these prayers and petitions and the thankfulness to God, all of that will fill your heart with peace, Paul says. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Now with that promise, Paul is not saying that prayer will magically make your problems go away. Prayer does not suddenly change the reality that you face when you walk out the door. But prayer gives us peace in the midst of our problems. Prayer reminds us that God is in charge and he has faithfully saved us and led us and provided for us in, you know, from the past up to this present point, and he can be trusted to continue to do so. That's what prayer reminds us of. That sense of being pulled in one direction by hope and the other direction by fear, well, that can be replaced by calming reminders of God's faithfulness to us. And the fear of terrible and catastrophic outcomes in our future, that can be replaced by reassuring memories of God's goodness to us and how faithful he has been. In a way, Paul was saying, the persecution will not magically disappear from Philippi. Wish I could tell you otherwise, but it won't. But prayer will strengthen your faith in the Lord and will allow you and enable you to stand firm. Now, in 2021, here in Princeton, 
We don't face violent persecution for which we thank God for because we recognize that many Christians around the world today do face violent persecution. By God's grace, we don't, not yet. The external pressures that we are called to stand firm against are more like the natural byproducts of living in a fallen world stained by sin. Things like we need to stand firm against injustice and health issues and broken relationships and the loss of a loved one and adversity and trials and pain and doubt and fear and a host of other experiences that can rob us of our joy. But Paul's words to the Philippians are just as applicable to us today in those situations. We still need to respond to them by rejoicing in the Lord. Anchor your joy in the person and work of Christ. Consider it all joy, Paul, or James says, when you face trials of various kinds. His word to let your gentleness be evident to all, still applicable today. We still have to respond to hardship and adversity and unexpected turns of events with gentleness, especially when anger and bitterness and frustration would be anticipated. And the call and urge to go and present your request to the Lord, that's still applicable to us. Still need to remember God's faithfulness to us in the past, how he has led us and saved us and provided for us. And then we choose to trust him in the present. We choose to trust him in the present. Third and finally, the call to stand firm is applied personally. It's applied personally. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. In these final two verses, Paul speaks to individual believers saying this applies to each one of you personally. What you think about matters, and it matters more than you think. What you think about matters, and it matters more than you think. In this passage, Paul is calling the church in Philippi and the church in Princeton to stand firm in the Lord, because here's the truth. Here's the truth. If we are serious about applying, God's, uh, applying Paul's word or God's word through Paul, if we're serious about applying that internally and externally, we must first apply this teaching personally. We have to apply it first to us. And that means we need to pay attention to the thoughts we entertain in our minds. We have to pay attention to the thoughts we entertain in our minds. Another way of saying that, we need to think about what we think about. Okay? Paul understood that a person's thoughts play a huge role in determining a person's perspective, their attitudes, their behavior, and who that person becomes. Right out of the Old Testament, and Paul would have had this memorized, Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. This is why it's so important to guard your minds, being careful of what we expose ourselves to, being cautious about the kinds of things we dwell on when we have time to let our minds wander. And it's important that we make sure that we take every thought captive 
to obey Christ. The idea is we need to test the ideas that float around in our mind. Test them. Do they line up with Scripture? Are they true according to God's Word? And we keep only what aligns with God's Word, and we get rid of the rest. Just get rid of the rest. In these final two verses, Paul actually gives us kind of a filter for the Christian mind, identifying the kinds of thoughts that, should, that we should dwell on and give space to in our thinking. Because not every thought is equally important. Not every thought is true. And not every thought deserves equal space in our minds. So let's, see, let's review quickly what Paul says here. First he says, give space in your mind to whatever is true. Whatever is true. And he means, what he means here is, what is reality versus what are you perceiving to be happening? Find out what reality is and what aligns with God's word. We are bombarded every hour of every day with false ideas and wrong perceptions and cleverly disguised lies. And these will deceive us and lead us astray. So we must test the ideas in our mind and pursue what is true. Then he says, whatever is noble. And when he says noble, what he means is whatever is honorable, whatever is majestic, whatever rises above the world's dirt and scandal. Think about things that are honorable. When he says whatever is right, he means what is right according to God's standard of righteousness. Not necessarily what's right in the world's eyes. What is right in God's eyes? When he says whatever is pure, he means what is wholesome and morally pure. When he says what is lovely, he, he's talking about having spiritual beauty, moral beauty. Something that draws people together towards the Lord. Not something that's divisive and separates people and causes division and anger and fighting. Think about what is lovely that draws people together. What is admirable, meaning what is worthy of approval. And something that admirable would also mean that it speaks well of the thinker, that we would admire a person for thinking that. If anything is excellent, meaning that it is virtuous or morally excellent, and if anything is praiseworthy, meaning it's worthy of worship, it's worthy of thanking God for and praising for, it's worthy of acknowledging that God would have provided that for us. Uh, and it points people to the Lord. These are the things worthy of sustained thought and contemplation and reflection. And finally then Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And here, again, Paul returns to this theme of imitating godly examples. We talked about this last week. And again, this is not a case of Paul's ego rearing its ugly head. Not at all. Paul is simply reminding his readers that this is how every wholehearted Christian should live. We, every sincere follower of Christ should live in such a way that if needed, their lives could be held up as an example for somebody else to consider. That's the way every one of us should live. And Paul closes with this promise. If we would consistently choose to live this way, 
the more we will experience the God of peace. And we want that, don't we? We want that. Well, we're out of time this morning, so let me close with this. Paul dearly loved the Philippian believers. His heart was bound together with it, woven together with cords that could not be broken. And this little church was a fantastic church, deeply committed to the Lord and to the ministry of the gospel, but it wasn't a perfect church. No church is. The Philippian church, like every other church, had issues and concerns that were kind of impeding its spiritual growth. And Paul wanted to shepherd the heart of this church. He wanted to give them instruction to help them cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that God could continue the work that he had started in them and would bring to completion. And so Paul says, I want you to think about how to apply these things internally, externally, and personally. And as I think about Jean Getz's story at the beginning of our message and the young lady whose body didn't respond properly to the signals from her brain, it is my prayer that each believer, every one of you, everyone in the, within the sound of my voice in Christ Community Church, that you will take your walk with God seriously so that we might increasingly, increasingly become quickly and fully responsive to the head of our body, Jesus Christ. May that be true to the praise of his glorious name. Let's pray. And then the worship team is going to come and lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It is so good for us, and it is good for us to be in it, to study it, to learn it, and to apply it. God, first I pray that we would increasingly become a responsive people, quickly and fully obeying every teaching from the head of our body, Jesus Christ. May your scripture saturate our thinking. May we give uh, time to it, to read it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, and to obey what we are learning. May we respond to internal disagreements with one another when they arise, and may we do that with the attitude of Christ, with humble servanthood, seeking peaceful resolutions, not victory, but unity. May we respond to external pressures with gentleness, not with retaliation or bitterness, so that by our lives, by our reactions, your name would be lifted high. And may we each respond personally. May we be careful to pay attention to what we think about, what we expose ourselves to, and what we meditate on, so that we may experience your presence more fully. God, we want to be a people who you find great delight being in our midst. May you continue to be at work in our hearts, completing in us the work that you have begun. And may we cooperate with you in that effort. Thanks for being at work in us. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.